Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Matt Foster. If you're not familiar with Matt, Matt is a engineer and producer originally based out of the UK. He got his start working as an assistant at EMI's music publishing studios in the mid-90s, where he had the opportunity to work with a lot of bigger artists such as Jamiroquai, Primal Scream, Elastica, Jazzmatazz, and a whole bunch more. And in this interview today, we get into a lot of great discussion all about his processes relating to getting big, clear, low end and what he likes to do there to, you know, get his kick and bass and all that kind of stuff to work well together and make the the low end sound big, even on small speakers. We also get into what he likes to do when it comes to getting great vocals. Matt has a great knack for getting his vocals to sound really clear and very focused. And we get into all of his process about the various types of compressors that he likes to use. He covers his go-to tools for that. We talk about dealing with sibilance and a whole bunch more. If you're someone who struggles with getting your low end to sound clear or getting your vocals to sound really polished, this episode is going to be really helpful. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Matt Foster, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Thank you. Thank you. I'm really well. Thank you very much. How are you? Doing great. For people who might not know you or aren't familiar with your work, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into all this stuff? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'm a mix engineer and producer, and I've also done some teaching um, at audio engineering colleges. And uh, my background started off in the 90s in the London uh, music scene, music industry, uh, recording studios. And yeah, I was very lucky to have kicked it all off there. Nice. So how did you like ultimately get into like the music production? Like what, what got you started with that? Yeah, well, I was um, a musician um, around the age of like 15, 16. I started playing guitar um, and like really heavily getting into music. Um, you know, I had a group of friends, probably like most people really, you know, I had a group of friends. We all played guitars. Um, we went to gigs. We, um, you know, were throwing ourselves into music left, right, and center. I was very much into kind of at that age, um, a mixture of mostly rock music, um, American and English, uh, rock music. But I was also like more into, or as well as that, I was into like kind of hip hop and that kind of stuff of the 90s. And yeah, so I was, I guess music was always on my radar. It was always, something that uh, I was very, very interested in. Never really considered it as a, a career. And I was studying at a college, doing my uh, the traditional kind of English, history, sociology, those kind of things. And uh, I remember there was a guy there that was like a careers guy. And uh, he, he was talking about, you know, what you wanted to do when you left college, et cetera. And I was like, uh, I was kind of thinking about maybe being a sound engineer. And, you know, it all kind of seemed a bit pie in the sky, kind of something that wasn't really um, that accessible. Um, didn't know much about it. And he turned me on to a, a college course that was uh, in central London. And so I applied for that and I got a place. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, this makes a lot of sense. 
because I didn't really, and I was never into the touring with band thing. Um, it always just seemed a bit kind of unstable to me. I'd, <laughs> I'd been performing in various bands and I like local gigs, but the idea of jumping in a van and going around Europe it didn't really appeal to me. So as an alternative thing to that, being a sound engineer based in a studio seemed like a, something really cool and that I could get into. And I think it was that marriage of loving music, being a musician, but also being quite technical as well mm -hmm. and being interesting into the engineering part and acoustics and what have you. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's what prompted me. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That like, you know, that that touring life isn't for everyone. That's that's for sure. You know, it takes it takes mm. a certain type of personality to uh to be able to do that. And uh you also just have to you have to be very on top of your business skills if you're gonna make it work financially on the road, you know. Like I think you need to absolutely you need yeah. to know how to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, and it absolutely, yeah. And it turns out turns out it was it was right for me because years later I started to do um some live sound and I realized that was not for me either. You know, um I kind of enjoyed it. Um, but again it was that the road kind of calling and I was just like, No, it, it's it's not for me. And I was very much at that that time I'd, I'd been in and around studios for quite a while and I really liked the sort of controlled atmosphere of a studio as opposed to the sort of chaotic live uh, kind of scenario, especially when you're first starting in the live area, you know, there was bands not turning up and, you know, equipment not working and working in, you know, some real dives, live venues, you know, so it was the safety of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, t I totally agree with that too. Like in my experience doing live sound, you know, I, I did a lot of touring and stuff like that. And it's just like every night is a new stressful event where it's just like, all right, how do I yeah. work in this room? Where are all the yeah. patches? Like, you know, yeah. how do I use this board that I've never seen before? You know, stuff like that pops Absolutely. up all the time. Yeah, yeah, completely. I had that exact experience. Uh, I did a gig one time as a live sound engineer and I turned up and I think it was like my third or fourth kind of gig doing live sound. So I was gradually getting into it. It was in central London. But so I rocked up to this club and it was probably about 100, 150 capacity and they had a few bands booked and all that kind of stuff. And I turned up and it was the first major hurdle that I had where um, there was the mixing desk was in some back cupboard lying on its, <laughs> you know, with all the knobs facing the floor. Um, no one knew where the cables were. No one knew where the monitors were. I think it doubled as like a comedy club or something as well. So they just shoved all the music equipment into a comedy. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this this is, I think that was the last time I ever did it, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good time to call it quits on that kind of thing. Good time to bail. Yeah, 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 yeah when absolutely. you're When you're now becoming like the systems engineer and you got to put together the whole system and get the yes. show running, you know, that that's, yes. that's a little different than just showing up and like yeah. everything kind of Plus, being more or less. I had right. uh, friends and colleagues who were doing the live sounding and uh, we were still in bands and their complexion was not a good advertisement for uh, wanting <laughs> to get into that kind of thing. That's a good point. Yeah, you definitely have to uh, enjoy having pale skin and never yeah, seeing daylight yeah. and Riding it <laughs> working out. at night yeah. all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> right so on. respect to those live sound engineers. Totally. There's, there's a, uh, you know, it is a, 
it's a tough gig, and there are certain people who are cut out for it, and those guys are amazing, and you know, making mm-hmm. it happen, guys and girls, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. like they're they're making it happen, and you know, we get to enjoy shows as a result of those people. So there's. Uh, Thank God for them, for sure, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so you talked about how you went to the school, and I'm assuming that's, like, the primary place where you started to learn more about production. Um, after school, like, what? where did your career go from there? Like, obviously, you said you did some live stuff, but um, yeah. as far as getting into studios, what was that like? Yeah, so I was very lucky because uh, the college course that I did was three years. Um, the first year was full-time study, and in the second year, it was like a thing that we have in uh, England or in the UK called day release. So we would do college one day a week and then the rest of the week, uh, which I assume would be like Tuesday to Friday or whatever it was, um, was a music or a, a, a studio placement. So, and the college actually arranged for you to get placements in, in the studio. Um, so this was super cool. And like, you know, thinking back, how lucky was I? Because... I'm not sure that kind of thing even exists anymore. Um, it was a particular feature of the college course that I did that they got these placements for you in the studios and they had hookups with all these different studios and some really good studios as well. You nice. know, you could be um, proactive yourself and go to a studio and say, Hey, do you want me to work there? And, you know, and do this combined studying and, and work kind of thing. Um, so I, I completed my first year. And that was like a foundation um, at college. And then I remember, I think I went for an interview at Red Bus Studios first, um, which is kind of a famous studio. I don't think it's there anymore in London. It's to do with Red Bus Recordings, um, which is from a big label from the 70s. I believe they had Brian Johnson from ACDC. His band Geordie was signed to them, Hmm. I believe. Anyway, so I went there and the studio just blew my mind. It was just amazing. First time I'd been in like a big studio, inverted commas, and, you know, the big tape machines, the big consoles, the big speakers, you know, big rooms. And um, I don't think I got that job there. Um, But on the same day or very close to that time, I went for an interview at EMI Music Publishing uh, with a fellow student of mine. And I remember being told, like, Hey, look, we've got like 50 people, um, of avatar, oh, sorry, have, um, applied for the job. Um, we only have two positions. We're interviewing like 20 people. So I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to get it. So I went in there kind of casual and, um, lo and behold, I got the job. Hmm. So I got a job working for, well, when I say job, it was like, um, not an internship. They did pay, but it was pretty much just paying expenses and a little bit on top. So I was doing my one day at college and then the rest of the week I was in the in the studio in my music uh, publishing but it was great it was it was the perfect um job to to get you into studios because um it was a uh, because it was for in my music publishing it was a demo studio and it was a demo studio for their writers so it could be the artists um it could be bands it could be just people who concentrate on songwriting. Um, but there was kind of no pressure. You know, it wasn't a commercial facility. Um, somebody wasn't paying for the session, you know, so it was quite relaxed. And I believe the hours were like something like 10, 10 till 6 or 10 till 6.30. 
which is completely unheard of. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Maybe PM um, to AM, that kind of thing. You know, that's, that's pretty I typical. I know, right? Guys, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that, that came later. I'll tell you more about <laughs> that baptism of fire later. But uh, yeah, so I had a job there and um, it it was amazing. You know, again, I had this, had that same buzz going in there. It wasn't, you know, the biggest studio, but it was way more than was really needed. Um, for a lot of those writing sessions. Um, we had a lot of bands used to come in. Jamarakai were signed to In My Music Publishing. Um, so they used to come in for writing sessions. And what was great about that was exactly as I was saying, it was, there was no pressure. They weren't there to record the next single or the album. They were just there, given some time to, um, you know, try some things out, you know, maybe make some drum loops, um, listen to some records, create some samples. Um, the main singer from Jamaica, Jay, was never there. Um, but Toby, the keyboard player, Stuart Zender, the bass player, Derek McKenzie, the drummer, was there. And, you know, and they were just kind of jamming. And uh, they were really cool guys, and, and that was awesome. Um, and then we had bands like Elastica around coming in. Um, there was a lot of songwriters. Um, yeah, it was really cool, you know, because I got to be shown and learn in a, you know, a kind of casual environment, you know, what an XLR cable was, where to plug it, why you needed phantom power, um, how to line up tape machines, what a compressor was, um, how to use the patch bay, where to patch things in. So, you know, it, it was really, really cool. You know? That's amazing. It's such an interesting thing too, because like you would, you would almost think that at that level of musician that's coming through or, you know, these writers and all that, that, a place like EMI, they would want like people who were super on top of their game and like, you know, who really knew everything about the equipment to make like the life of the artist super easy. You know what I mean? Um, but it's, I mean, the fact that you got to learn while working with some of these really big artists in the room, yeah. it's, it's such an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, bear in mind, I was just an assistant. So I was, you know, I started off literally as like a glorified runner. They did have engineers there, like so JB, who was the the, the chief uh, engineer manager and then Darren who had had my job a couple of years prior and those guys really knew their their stuff they were really on it you know especially uh JB because he was um he'd been doing it for a while at that point and he was really cool because he was a really good musician and a really good producer and he was very much into kind of indie stuff but he also knew his way around a sampler and lots of synthesizers that we had so he was the kind of perfect guy um, to have running your sessions, you know, so he could do anything. He could record a band. Um, he could program for you. You know, he could, uh, he was producing techno records. Um, it was, it was so interesting. And um, one of the projects that was fascinating that they did there was, um, you know, Guru from Gangstar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he had, um, uh, like a side project, which probably became as big as a gangster, was called Jasmataz. Mm -hmm. So he was, um, I think, I don't know who was making the beats, but it was kind of like hip hop beats. But he would get like uh, people like Courtney Pine playing on there and various other soul singers. You know, every track was something different. So the first Jasmataz project was part of it was recorded at the studio in my music studios or pub the publishing studio, and they came back to do Jasmataz too, so I was assisting on the sessions there. That was 
an insight into a real session, if you like, you know, people coming in at certain times, having to be ready, you know, final recordings were being made, you know. Um, Yeah, but there was was things like that going on there as well. And of course, got to know the people in the the music publishing department, the A&R people, um, you know, had some amazing artists uh, signed at the time. So yeah, it, it was, it was really cool. I imagine that like working in a demo studio where, like you said, like these artists are sometimes just coming in with no ideas. They're coming in just experimenting and, and creating songs on the spot. I'm assuming that you must have observed a lot of or learned a lot of really cool lessons about the process of songwriting or production, like just just by being around people who are creating things as opposed to like coming in with ideas. Absolutely. Flushed out, right? Yeah, yeah. So many things. So many things. I mean, just things like double tracking vocals lead vocals you know this that was new to me hadn't even thought about it um probably wasn't even aware um stacking harmonies recording vocals in a certain kind of way um and at those times the the technology was more basic so it was synchronizing the computer to the tape machine you know um but yeah as you said like the the songwriting thing yeah like uh, Kathy Dennis used to be one of the writers that used to come down a lot. She worked with like Danny D and they'd be writing for all kind of people. And yeah, you'd just be sitting in on a session and, you know, watching them create melodies and, you know, writing lyrics and uh, structuring songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that side of it, again, was really fascinating. And the same with the band thing as well. There was um, a really cool artist, Gem Archer who went on to join Oasis. Um, he had his, he was signed to in my music publishing and he had an amazing band called heavy stereo who they never really made it big, but they were just always on that kind of verge. But to be around him was amazing, incredibly talented, creative guy. Um, and he was always talking about like, you know, we need to use some seventh chords and the harmonies need to be sevenths and, they were listening to like um, Beatles songs and, you know, copying what the, the Beatles are doing like harmony wise. And um, I think one of the things that um, probably I was quite good at was just wanting and being super keen um, at the same time was just diving in. So I was quite happy just to man the tape machine. So for the, for JB, he was like the, the main engineer there. He even used to say to me, you know, I'm really happy for you to do this because, you know, I've done it so much um, that I can just step back. Someone mans the tape machine. I can focus on the sound, you know, pop out and it help, helped him a lot. And, you know, it, it taught me a lot as well. So for those guys in heavy stereo and other bands, I was like, you know, pressing the red light and learning to know, you know, which tracks to arm on the tape machine. We had like 24 Track two inch machines, then I believe it was an Atari MTR 90 Mark II, um, which was kind of a staple machine for London at that time. So, yeah, it, it was, um, it was, it was really good. It was really good. And I think as well, thinking back now that because we had, you know, some big names coming in, it really kind of not only just getting to know the sort of technicalities of a studio, but, you know, being able to deal with artists, you know, and, you know, at first it was probably, you know, a bit like freaky. Like, oh my God, it's like, 
you know, it's Jamiroquai. They're coming here. But, you know, after a few days, you know, and you get to hang out with them and, you know, you kind of um, become more at ease, you know. So, yeah, it, it was the perfect entry into recording studios for me, yeah. Of course, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, the fact that you would get to work on so much different music, different genres, and meet people that are of all different levels of fame and, and you know, like what, what better environment could you possibly learn in? You know, like it yeah. sounds amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It really was. Yeah. I love that. Well, I'd love to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your, uh, your technical process with stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that like really stands out to me when I listen to your mixes is that you do a great job of getting big low end with your tracks, but your tracks don't sound muddy. And you're also like, not the kind of person who like overhypes the top end. Cause I feel like that's something a lot of people do these days. They kind of have that smiley face EQ curve where you got tons of low end and tons of top end and the middle's kind of muddy and all that. But I feel like you do a really good job of just making everything feel really big and balanced. Um, so I'm curious to know, like in your opinion, what is the key to getting great low end? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'm, I'm really happy that you noticed that um, because that is something I've spent countless hours, days, weeks, months focusing on. And um yeah, I think I think largely it's a mindset. Um I think a lot of it comes from working with um or originally coming from an analog background with analog tape machines, analog consoles, um and just really liking um a bright and open and airy top end, but not like spiky and harsh, you know. Um, with tape machines, it was relatively easy to get that because they had the natural tape compression and it would, um, round off some of that spikiness in, in the high end on, you know, like overheads, hi hats, um, even guitars, vocals, sibilance, that kind of thing. Um, but also it would sort of enhance the, the bottom end. Um, the reason, the reason that it came about, like me really wanting to get into low end was I've always been a, a big, I say always, but for the longest time, I've been a huge reggae fan, which obviously a lot about the low end. Of course. And in the late 90s, I happened to be working with a lot of electronic dance music. And of course, bottom end was massively important to those dance records. You know, it took a while to really um, understand that, you know, to to have that super low end. Um seems kind of like an obvious thing um but it was more of a case that sometimes people would come in and i would mix their records and the low end was there other times it just wasn't they had the thinnest kick drums and they weren't aware of it you know and if if the mix engineer is not aware of it then you're kind of in in trouble um but yeah i know what you mean about that smiley face thing especially uh contemporary pop music is uber bright super bright you know and i try to match you know, I don't want my mixes to sound dull compared to anyone else's mixes. Um, but I try to match that for openness. But like I say, try and get it kind of controlled and have the large bottom end at the same time. You know, of course, completely dependent on the song. And, you know, it's not like a, a template applied to everything. But given the opportunity, yeah, I love to do that. Yeah, for sure. So then with regards to like, I think when a lot of people think about low end, you know, they'll typically focus on things like the kick or the bass. Um, And obviously those are two instruments that love to fight each other for the same sort of space. Um, Are there any tricks that you have there as far as like getting those two to work well with each other? 
Yeah, well, I mean, in um, the electro electronic world, you know, um, house, techno, dance, those kind of things. When you've got a bass line and, and a huge kick drum, um, obviously side chaining is quite a, a prominent uh, technique. But one of the things that I do quite a lot is just side chaining the low end of a particular instrument. If you take the bass and it's being triggered um, to duck on the low end with a multiband compressor, um, it just gives more space to the kick. Um, and it's the kind of thing I don't really want people to hear. You know, and I don't do it all the time. It depends. If there's this kind of rubbing with the bass and the, the kick drum, or the I should say the bass instrument, bass synth, whatever, there's this rubbing between the kick and the bass. You know, I, I've got a 12-inch subwoofer in my studio, so we, yeah, bass is really important to me. So sometimes I can be listening on my main monitors without the sub engaged and everything seems fine. I, mean, I put the sub in, subwoofer, and there's definitely some kind of ugly kind of rumble it's not so clean it's not as powerful so yeah doing that side chain technique of just ducking the low end you know 80 hertz and below on the uh, on the bass triggered from the kick really just helps create a little bit of a kind of you know more space for the kick it doesn't even have to be that much you know um and i i try the extremes you know try you know maybe 9 10 db and then i try you know maybe one or two db and then kind of try and find like the sweet spot where it kind of sits um, but it also helps to give a bit of a groove as well, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of the things I do. One of the other things is, um, and I've been doing it for, for eons for a long time, is using um, Waves R-Bass, mm -hmm. um, which is the subharmonic um, synthesizer thing, which adds harmonics to sounds. And what's interesting about that is that in terms of the low end, you can be or it can be surprising how little actually energy is going on in the sub frequencies. Maybe it's just the harmonics of the bass. So you can take a relatively clean bass sound and make it sound like it's it's a lot wider and it's a lot heavier by applying our bass. It just seems to fill the speak fill the speakers a lot more. And also it has the added benefit of for on smaller speakers that don't have so much low end um capabilities, it also makes the bass seem bigger there as well you know um i have to say though i have to say though that um one of the things is just still hard work you know of course. putting roll, rolling up the sleeves and just tweaking it until the low end until it's you know it's full um and exactly as you said you know not muddy you know it's full and it, it makes the room vibrate makes the speakers really powerful but it doesn't overpower the mix you know it's it's a kind of tasteful thing you know and sometimes you know i'll just really experiment you know i'll i'll make the bass crazy loud um super deep and then maybe pull it back in and just trying to kind of f find a sweet spot for, for where the mix kind of works and i think particularly in kind of the, sort of the house uh, mixes that i do people really appreciate that you know um they really appreciate that that huge chunky low end but at the same time it's very balanced with the rest of the mix of course you know yeah it's a i mean i'm glad that you brought up that idea of experimenting and trying lots of different things because yeah it's true it's like it's not like you just create a template and then you throw your tracks in there and the tracks hit the same level all the time and 
you know, all of a sudden it works. Like sometimes you do have to go a little harder on the bass in certain songs or, you know, a little bit harder on the compression or that kind of thing, or a little softer and that kind of thing. It's, you know, it's going to be song dependent. So you do have to be willing to experiment with stuff. And obviously, yeah, you can have your starting points that like feel good, but, you know, constantly be referencing the extremes against that, that baseline and see what actually sounds better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it translates to other genres as well. I remember, um, reading an interview with Alan Mulder years ago and he'd started off doing bands and then he'd got into doing some dance music. And he said that having that um, experience of learning on the job um, of mixing dance music translated to rock music as well. You know, what frequencies to boost on the kick to make it sound weighty, but without being muddy, you know, um, just being aware of those lower octaves of you know the mm-hmm. bass bass end or the frequency spectrum you know it, it really kind of translates of course you still have to keep it like you know um in context you don't want to have crazy low end on a, a rock song that's you know there's there's still other attributes other attributes that you kind of need to, to have there but sure. i think also as well that's one of the things about um some of the mixes that andy wallace was doing in the late 90s and early 2000s the stuff that he did with like limp um limp biscuit and uh, those kind of people, um, he had really powerful low end, you know, and combined with the guitars and stuff, it was, you know, slightly unusual, yeah. you know, even like Lincoln Park, you know, the low end was was big, you know, yeah. and it just made the mix sound really huge as well. Yeah. But, I mean, there's only so much low end that you have, right? So I'm glad that you also brought up the idea, that idea of using like the harmonic enhancement because mm-hmm. sometimes that is the way to make that low end feel bigger, but it's not really occupying low end space. It's, you know, it's, you're just, you're hearing Absolutely. those harmonics to, to yeah. perceive it as louder. Right. Yeah. And it's something that's important to me as well. You know, I have a little pair of speakers in my studios, um, some IK multimedia aisle outs, and, um, they're kind of there for that specific reason really is to, when I listen to them at a certain volume, I want to be able to hear the bass. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. small speakers, you know, they don't go particularly low. I want to be able to hear the notes of the bass, you know. So even though it's a lot about boosting sub-frequencies, there's a lot about, you know, dialing in some low mid-range, you know, to make, maybe give some pluckiness to the bass or, you know. I always love how audible um, Paul McCartney's bass was in, in the Beatles, you know. And it's a really important part of the mm-hmm. Beatles, you know, like because he's playing, the, playing these crazy bass lines or crazy cool bass lines that have some nice inversions and they're you know, very melodic in themselves, you know. Um, so but they're not super subby either. No, you know? like they're, definitely they're actually not, much more no, mid-range. And, no, but there's that kind of pluckiness to them, that audibility, you know, and it's, and they're not overly mid-range either. They just sit there really nice, you know. And of course, it's not just about the instrument itself, you know, carving some of the other stuff out and I think that was one of the things that I learned as a mix engineer. Um, I can't remember who I was assisting, but I was assisting a mix engineer. And a really obvious thing that he did, um, but at the time it was a, an epiphany for me, was that um, he had this track that had a piano. It was like a, a live band kind of thing. Piano, live drums, live bass. It was a Rhodes, maybe some live strings and some vocals. and. Uh, the intro started with this huge piano sound, like, like big clunky, um, lots of low notes. 
And then the drums kicked in with the bass. And he did a really simple thing. He just duplicated the piano, had separate settings for the intro and separate settings for when the, the drums and the bass uh, kicked in and just thinned out the the um, the piano a little bit when the full band kicked in. You wouldn't notice it, but if he had left the same settings or the same EQ that he had for the intro going into when the, the full band kicked in, it would have been really hard to make it work. It seems seamless when you listen to it. I was like, oh, okay. But it's not only like an arrangement thing, it's like how you treat it and the other sounds to occupy the bass, you know? So yeah, that was a, an interesting lesson. Yeah, it's a really great lesson. It's it's all about that contrast, right? Like, you, so, like um, I can't remember, I think it was, there was some artist I was listening to who was talking about working with... Um, a producer named Lou Giordano. I think it was the singer from the, the band, the Ataris. I don't know if you remember them, but anyway, he was always talking about how like that producer, his goal was like when they were working, workshopping songs, it was always like, let's find a way to either create a pause right before the chorus hits so that everything mm -hmm. drops out. Or we find like some little part that we can thin out and then mm -hmm. we make the chorus hit harder, you know? And like, Absolutely. just like little things like that. It's, I mean, that's, that's arrangement, but it's also, touching on the EQ perspective and, and, you know, finding ways to just create a contrast so that, yeah, your parts differentiate themselves. And yeah, didn't Bruce Sweden do that on some Michael Jackson songs? I heard that he limited the bandwidth in the intro. So when the, the beat kicked in, it would sound bigger. Yeah. I believe that you know? for sure. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember what songs it would have been. Um, but it, it really opened my mind to like, because I think, at some point, I was just into that thing. Oh, you have a mix and everything's kind of static. You know, you have static second uh, settings on the EQ, the volumes to just make the song just as it is. But as a mix engineer, you're neglecting a lot of the things that you can do. To not only enhance the arrangement, as you say, but, you know, make things work better. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of things that I do in the mix, you know, is that, you know, enhancing the arrangement. Sometimes it might be, I mean, I literally had it on mixes I've done this week. Sometimes if it's like a pop dance kind of track and in the chorus, the kick is pumping away, sounds great. But in the verses, maybe it just sounds a bit too pokey when there's less instrumentation going on and there's not so so much of a dynamic. So I quite often will duplicate that kick track and for the verse have a slightly different EQ. You know, nothing, it's not rocket science, you know, it's just maybe making it a little bit like a dollar, maybe slightly less low end, mm. maybe slightly just low in volume, but just treating it in a, in a different kind of way, you know. And um, same for the bass, same for same for vocals, you know. Mm. Very rare for me to have a lead vocal that will um, be on the same track from the beginning to the end. You know, I'll normally duplicate the track and treat it different from the chorus and different for definitely for the bridge and and for the middle eight. You know, and even if I have it on a single track, I might even do a bit of automated EQ or in Pro Tools, do some uh, uh, EQ just the, the clips itself. So, yeah. And yeah. like I say, that was, and I'm still learning and developing those kind of things, but that's when mixing became really exciting for me. It was like, you know, you can really enhance the arrangement with some of the things that you do. For sure. No, I love that. I think that's a great lesson for people to to learn if they haven't already it's like you're, you're always trying to make things work well in the song and yeah it doesn't have to be static um you know i remember a similar idea like someone once told me like 
with a lot of heavy metal stuff, like whenever there's double kick parts, a lot of engineers will automate the high pass filters. So they'll just like bump it up a little bit during those sections. So you don't just get this like uh, wall of low end mud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then, and it's because the parts are usually so fast, you don't even notice that it got thinner for a split second. And then, right. then it goes back to the groove and it's like heavy again, you know, and feeling full. Like, yeah, but like, yeah. But it's something that like, once you realize that like you can do that, it makes your mix it so much cleaner. <laughs> it's a game changer. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And being tuned into those areas where there can be problematic things. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I do a similar thing as well. Um, like you mentioned, with like the metal thing, when you've got like the double bass drum, you know, maybe um, changing the compression, so, mm-hmm. you know, slowing the tack time, you know, treating things individually for certain parts, you know, maybe using a transient designer to add a little bit more tack you know, and those kind of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, I think you know, that alongside um, being open-minded to kind of like special treatment with effects can really enhance people's mixes a lot. I think. Of course, yeah. So we obviously talked about focusing on low end and, you know, like I was saying earlier, like you're not the type of person that usually overhypes the top end. So to me, then the mid range has to be that thing that balances out with the low end to, to make it feel really nice and clear still. Um, so as far as it relates to mid range, what are some of your tricks there for, for making sure that you get that right? Yeah. I mean, again, hard work (laughs) takes, you know, just trial and error, um, really trying to shape things in certain ways. Um, that's that's the most important tool or most important thing, I think, is just having to to dive in. Um, but something else that's come along fairly recently that helps a lot is things like the Unmask module in the Isotope Neutron plugin, um, where you can have, let's say you've got like a super buzzy, noisy synth sound and a lead vocal. Um, and they're conflicting, you know, there's some, you know, they're fighting for clarity in the mid range, the unmasked module, you can send the vocal via sidechain, that module in the, in the plugin, and it will work out the frequencies that are conflicting for you and duck them. You know, sometimes you can get away with the surprising amount. Um, other times it's really noticeable and you really hear it working. Um, but that's a cool little trick. That I, mm-hmm. that I do quite a lot and the thing that I like about that is it only happens um, the processing is only happening when the vocal is in so if you've got this full synth part that's nice and buzzy and bright but then it's slightly toned down when the vocal comes in but in the gaps of the vocal it's you know it rises up of course in a musical way you don't want it to be noticed that can be a really nice effect and for the energy of the music I I don't see how you can replicate that. You know, I mean, you could with your own kind of automated EQ, but it's quite sophisticated. And when you watch the graph, it's it's ducking some high mids, it's ducking some low mids. When a singer gets louder, it's ducking even more. So it's very dynamic, you know? Interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's like a, a dynamic sidechain EQ like, or sidechain yeah, dynamic yeah. EQ or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I, I used to do it before. I used to use um, FabFilter multiband uh, compressor and I would trigger certain instruments um, from the vocal to duck in, in the upper mid-range, um, maybe a bit of the low mid-range as well. And that kind of works, but 
like I say, I find the unmask module in the, the neutron plugin, it's just it's more sophisticated. You can do more with it. it seems to work with you as with your with the way you want the vocal to sit a little bit better. Yeah. Cool. I'll definitely have to check out that plugin for sure. I I know I have it. I just never have uh, looked at that feature before. So definitely cool to have. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's really cool. And um, of course the other thing is like panning as well. You know, it's, it's quite a simple thing, but often overlooked, you know, maybe just shifting the panning of one sound to the other side, panning things around, trying to create space, that kind of way. Yeah, I love that you brought up panning. I think that that is like such a underutilized tool. You know, like between so. just like volume and panning, those two are Absolutely. like the things that yeah, everyone yeah. forgets about. It's you know, you want to open up a new plugin because it looks fancy or something, but like yeah, yeah, those yeah. are some of the most important tools you have, and they can make your life so much better, so yeah. easy. Yeah. yeah. Like. <laughs> when 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 I used to first teach in my or when I was first like teaching my mixing class um, at London School of Sound. I, uh, that was the, the first lesson was I want you to go home and mix this project. And it was very simple. It was like, you know, seven or eight um, audio files or tracks. And people would come back and they would EQ the hell out of things, you know, and completely change it. And then I said, well, hang on, let's pull it, pull, pull up this song and let's just use volume and pan. And I guarantee you, nine times out of 10, that was a better mix than what the students had done. And that was my object lesson was like, think about those things first, panning, volume, you know, before diving with an EQ or like you say, spraying on the latest, newest plugin, you know, really focus on on those kind of things. Yeah. And I think a lot of that came from my training in, in studios was, um, there was kind of a mantra amongst recording engineers was like, fix it in the recording, you know, so whether that would be, you know, um, change the settings on the guitar amp or making sure you've got new strings on the guitar or new drum heads, um, make sure the acoustic space is set up right, that try some different microphones, microphone placement, you know, so get it nailed and dialed in as up with as much as possible, you know. So it's those kind of things before diving in in the mixing process and using EQ. So I think I still kind of got that sensibility that, Rather than using EQ to help yourself out, maybe it's a balance thing, you know, or panning. Yeah, I definitely think those are like the first two places to look. You know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to have that hierarchy of like mental checklist of like what you're, how you're going to suss out a problem and, you know, what you're going to do to it. And I think, yeah, volume and panning are like the first two things you want to look at just to see if you can make a big change there without having to yeah, get into yeah. all the plugins and, and compressors. I think it can make, and, you know, just panning, just things wider than the other guy can make the mix sound more interesting mm-hmm. well you know I, I quite often like to take mono sounds and pan it off to the side the trick is to kind of make it feel still part of the mix but hanging out there on on one side over the other you know and often in that kind of case i might use you know reverb pan to the other side or a delay pan to the other side even if subtle there's something mm-hmm. to kind of join it back to the mix yeah, 100%. Yeah, you want your mix to feel balanced. You don't want it just to feel like you threw something on the other side just because no, you need it out no. of the way of something, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, a lot of that came from, as well, I mean, sort of bonding together of the mix. Have you heard any of, like, um, it's not particularly my kind of music, but John Coltrane's um, recordings from the 60s? Yeah. 
there's a, a song, is it called Crusade? I can't remember what album it's on. And um, this guy that he recorded, Rudy Van something or other, he was a kind of a strange guy, set up a studio in his parents' front room, and he had all these jazz legends come to record there. And um, after, I remember what it was. Um, you know, I can call up Spotify here. Anyway, so, um, yeah, when you listen to that, and it's like mid sixties jazz recording. Crescent is the uh, is the name of the album. John Coltrane, yeah, like I say, not really my kind of style of music, but from an engineering point of view, it's incredible. And to see how they've panned things around. Okay, it was in the experimental times with stereo, where they had the drums and the bass on the right, and the the the, the horns were on the on the left, the pianos in the middle. But that said, the space that it has. Is just phenomenal, so, yeah. And I've I don't want to get too um, I don't want to digress, but I've been listening to that in comparison to some modern music, and the modern music is smashed to hell and super squashed and hugely compressed. And when you listen to this John Col- Coltrane song Crescent um, with loudness normalization on, it sounds louder. There's a lot of modern records. And even when you turn it off, it sounds somehow perceivably louder mm-hmm. because of the dynamics, maybe the way things are panned. Yeah, so it's an object lesson that, you know, we've gone forwards and uh, developed things a lot, you know, hugely. But uh, those old recordings, there's, you know, when they were good, they were really good. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think it, you know, it has to do with like the dynamics, the arrangements of the songs, the panning, and creating that contrast, right? Like, you know, back then it wasn't about layering a million guitar tracks or you know no. whatever it was, right? It was like no. you just everyone had their part and the arrangements took care of themselves. Uh, whereas now it's like everyone's double tracking everything, adding like a gazillion vocal yeah. layers and it, yeah, synth layers and all true. this, and there's I mean, like no contrast. Yeah, uh, one of my college. Um, Tutors was like, used to tell us all the time, less is more, mm-hmm. less microphones, less instruments. And, you know, it's actually one of the things as a producer that I try to do. I try to um, serve the song with as few instruments as possible and not just put things in for the sake of it. I fell into the trap when I first started um, producing music and programming my own things was... I would think, okay, this doesn't really sound right to me. Let's add something else. No, it's still not right. I need to add something else. And I'll just keep on adding and adding. When I realized, actually, probably the foundation of what I had wasn't that good. And I should have probably just scrapped it and tried something else. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's one of those things I have as a producer. I really want every single sound to have a justified uh, reason for being there. So, yeah, le- less is more can really. And I remember the first time. I observed an engineer using the Glyn Johns technique for recording drums. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's quite extreme, like three or four mics or whatever it is. But I was like, this is... And for that particular track that they were working on, which was kind of a, a, a jazzy, um, soulful kind of thing, it just was perfect. And the drums just breathed so well. And there was kind of minimal um, like phasing going on between the, the multi-mics and... Uh, it just sounded glorious, you know, not, mm-hmm. not, you know, 
appropriate for every type of recording, of course. You know, for a lot of metal, you're not going to get away with that <laughs> without <laughs> so a direct mic is not crammed work. onto the snare, yeah. you know, <laughs> and a few samples layered in. But, you know, it was, you know, it was a, an eye-opener and it really broadened my palette, you know, in terms of, like, recording techniques. For sure. Yeah, I often try to remind myself sometimes when I like when I look around my sessions and I see that I'm like getting pretty deep with plugins, I, I often try to remind myself like back in the day, people just had like volume, panning, compression. Or sorry, yeah, or EQ. Yeah. EQ and maybe compression on, yeah, on a board yeah. in front of them. They didn't have like everything else. So it was like no. you had what you had, and yet there were still people that were making amazing mixes. You know, they only had three three EQ points that they could touch per channel, that kind of thing, you Absolutely. know? So, and so Absolutely. sometimes you just have to like really strip things down and like realize <laughs> yeah, I mean, like good I'm, mixes can be made I'm as guilty way. as anyone about that. Sometimes when I'm, I'm mixing a lead vocal and I step back and I go like, do I really need like 10 plugins? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and in that situation, I, I usually duplicate the track and almost start again and just bring each plugin in. And guess this really adding something very similar to the, so my production process, I'm like, does this sound really needed? You know, a mix and lead vocal. Is this plugin really needed? Do I really need two compressors? Do I really need all this? Sometimes it is justified. You know, mm. sometimes sometimes it really is. But I think it's good just to, without you know, getting over um, analytical, just to, to question whether that's right. For sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of vocals, that's another element of your mix that I really enjoy. Like, I, I think you have a great job of you do a great job of getting your vocals to sound really clear and mm. and keep the focus of the listener the entire time, which I think is mm. such an important thing. Like a lot of I, I find I listen to a lot of mixes and the vocals kind of just they're there. They might be loud, but they they blend in a lot with the with the yeah background music, whereas I feel like with your tracks, there's like this clarity and separation with the vocal that I really appreciate. Um, so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your vocal process and, and what kind of techniques you like to use there. Yeah, well, um, where that came from was that um, working as an assistant engineer, it was very noticeable that the engineers who were not only good at mixing, but particularly good at mixing vocals, were the ones who were most in demand. Like, really. And uh, it was it's it's a real skill to mix vocals really well. Um, so I learned from a lot of those guys and um, it's um, it's just, I mean, I remember about 20 years ago, I, I realized I wasn't very good at mixing vocals. Didn't really know what compressors to use, didn't know what frequencies to boost, I didn't really know how to place it in the mix. So I really did a deep dive and really dug in and listen to stack loads of records. And a lot of the records in the early 2000s that you would listen to, like some of the Dre, Dr. Dre productions, Mary J. Blige, a lot of the R&B kind of stuff, their vocals were mixed so well. You know, super bright, super clear, nice effects, appropriate for the song. Um, and I realized that that would work in pop music really well. Pop at the time was maybe a bit overly wet, maybe not so upfront, you know, thinner, not as rich. So I really dug into that kind of thing and I wanted to really up my vocal mixing game. And a lot of it was about having um, a, a select few tools rather than many. 
and knowing those tools really well and how they work. For example, one of the, the plugins that I used and I still use um, at the time was the Waves Rvox, Renaissance mm-hmm. Vox, um, and the Waves Renaissance Compressor. They have a certain kind of character that really works with vocals. Um, they lock down the dynamic very well um, and it keeps it locked, the vocal locked in place so it, it sits in the mix really well. Um, so finding the compressors that worked even hardware or in, as plugins um, that could get get you a really nice sound quickly was very important. And some of those are the Waves Renaissance compressor, the Waves Rvox compressor, um, the Waves CLA compressors are really, really good, um, get used a lot here. Uh, the, the Fab filter uh, compressor is really good. Um, I try not to get bogged down with too, too many options. I feel that if I can't get the sound that I want with those plugins that I mentioned, then there's probably something wrong with the vocal recording and I probably need to start fixing it a bit more. Um, but if I've got really well recorded vocal or even a good um, recording of a, a vocal, um, those plugins, those compressors really help as well. And, you know, not to go too deep, um, but uh, I do a lot of kind of A-Bing of um, hardware compressors and plug-in compressors on vocals. And one of the things that I really like is when you you don't necessarily, I mean, of course it depends on the style of music, but let's say you've got like a typical pop song. One of the things I like is when the compression really evens out every single syllable and particularly like the Waves um, compressor plugins seem to be exceptional at that. It seemed to really marry well with the vocal. And it, like I say, it locks down the dynamic and it helps them become really clear. And it's very similar to what I learned as being a guitar player. I, um, I remember the first time I got a, a compressor guitar pedal and I was scratching my head like, I know people use these things, but what the <laughs> hell does it do, you know? <laughs> and especially guitar pedals because they don't have like gain reduction meters. So you yeah. You're flying blind. You don't know what the <laughs> hell is going on. There's no metering going on there. But one of the things that I noticed, even though I was probably setting it incorrectly as a teenager, was that it evened out my playing and made me sound like a better musician. You know, and that was for any style of like just jangly chords or even me- metal riffs, compressor before hitting the amp. So I, I kind of learned that then as as a feel thing that it can make the vocals seem like they've been performed better, you know, a more consistent dynamic. So you've got all these attributes of locking down the vocal, making it sit at a certain point in the mix, musically sounding better. I think compression mm. kind of makes them sound powerful. So, you know, to cut to, to the to the chase, like compression is a very large part of making vocals, you know, vocal mixing. Of course. And then I think it's also as well um, about, you know, um, dialing in the right kind of frequencies, you know, where to put the high pass filter. Um, like I was saying, like late 2000, sorry, late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of pop vocals are very thin sounding, but in the R&B world, they were a little bit thicker. They had a little bit more low mids and um, warmth to the sound. And since then, it, you know, it's 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 come across into, into the pop world. Um, but yeah, so I, I tried to maybe have a little bit more low end in my vocals than someone else you know i'm very conscious of where that filter is kind of 
um, sitting. Sometimes um, vocals need to be added or have some maybe 100 hertz dialed in to make them sound a little bit thicker. Um, and then again, just dabbling all those frequencies in the mid-range to make them sound like clear but not harsh. Um, one of the things that I do a lot of is boosting like kind of very high frequencies like 10, 11, 12 kilohertz. Um, and again, it's one of those mantras that I kind of have, like I want it to be bright and airy and open, but not harsh. And I find mm. if you, especially in kind of pop kind of music or any kind of music, but if you boost too much, six, seven, eight K vocals, they get very sibilant and it's not pleasant kind of sound, but you can do the same amount of boost, but even more at higher frequencies. And it creates this airy kind of them. So yeah, I do a lot of juggling with EQ and compression. And I think, you know, more than half the battle, if not three quarters of the battle, we're mixing. It's getting the volume, the panning, EQ and compression, and everything else will just kind of fall into place. You know, you put the tasteful reverbs and whatever have, have you know. Um, one of the things I do a fair amount with uh, vocals is even if they're dry, is use some subtle kind of maybe like delay, like a slapback delay, a ping pong delay, obviously, um, and just you know, and being candid, a lot of the times it's just auditioning maybe four or five different types of reverb to trying to get something that's really complementary, you know, and it's largely dependent on what's going on with the music. You know, do I want the, the reverb to be noticeable? Do I want it just to make it feel like it's got some depth, you know, it's, hmm. you know, you know, it takes time. Yeah, for sure. It took me, it took me a long time to, and, and still like, you know, the whole sibilance thing as well is, you know, it's not the most exciting topic, but I'm kind of obsessed with like techniques for controlling the sibilance and different deessas and, and what have you. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you brought up that idea of just using a little bit of a delay or like a little ping pong or slap or whatever. I, I personally, I prefer to use delay more than reverb generally when it comes mm. to vocals. Um, so yeah. I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. I think it, it largely depends on like the tempo of a song. Obviously, if it's like a slower song, mm. you have more space to fill. So, you know, sometimes reverb can fill that gap pretty nicely. And for a faster song, delay might do it, do it you know, where you just get a quick instance of that that vocal there for a split second and it's in and out, you know, and, and sometimes that yeah. makes your mix sound a lot cleaner. Um, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, definitely a big fan of using delay with that. And and I like what you men mentioned too, about like the top end and with like sibilance and you know how, if you mm. do push too much of that, like five, six, seven K then yeah, like that, that is where the S's really tend to be very present. So, you know, yeah. sometimes just getting that air gets you that same effect as the vocal being brighter, but without all of that extra junk in there. Yeah, and can I ask, have you found as well, it's quite amazing, like, some singers just have savage sibilance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> S's are just crazy. Other people, not so much. And I've I've had this, like, uh, when I was working, I'm not going to name the, the girl band, but I did a lot of recording and mixing for a girl brand, a girl band that's uh, very well known in the UK. Three girls. Two of them had the perfect voice. You could almost use any mic. The other, the third member, um, had the most sibilant voice. And you yep. could not use the same mic or same settings. And it was just her voice, you know. Mm -hmm. We used to try all different things. Mic at a slight angle, pencil across the front of the mic. And just just one of those things, you know. It's just people's voices, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, and it's, it's one. Of, it probably is one of the hardest things. Um, 
to to really dial in siblings. I like I say, I know it's not the sexiest topic, um, but I think if you're going to be you know really good at vocal mixing, it's one of those things that you kind of additional things you need to be on top of, you know. So um, you know because you you can and I've had this before where you can mix the first verse, uh, first sorry first two verses, first two choruses sounds perfect. You know, you don't hear any lisping on the Diesa. Gets to the bridge, and for whatever reason, there's a couple of lines that lispers like hell. <laughs> so you've got to be really on your toes to to listen through. Totally. You know, yeah. It, it's like one of those things where it's like with, with vocals, we use pop filters to prevent like all those plosives from hitting the mic, but there's like no yeah. sibilance filter, you know? So no, it's like the not only yet. sibilance no. filter is like really just finding the right mic and or the right if, angle. If you and, could invent a mic that controlled sibilance and patent it, you would be, yeah, <laughs> be a mic that has a built-in de-esser. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can That'd you be imagine? <laughs> and um, just out of interest, you mentioned delays before. So what kind of delay plugins do you like? I'm a big fan of just like the stock Pro Tools delay, mm, like the mod right. delay or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. And for me, like my go-to is I usually just have like a, a stereo delay, like 110 millisecond delay on one side, 220 on the other, mm. and like single repeat and that's it you know and like and i'll mm. usually re- roll off some of the top end you know i find that that's just like all i need and in isolation it sounds weird as hell but when it's mm. in the mix it's it's it feels like a reverb but without it being a reverb you know like yeah that's that's yeah. my go-to for for pretty much 90 percent of the vocals i work on i feel yeah and it's so interesting that you say that because um i've been around the world with different you know i've had rolling space echoes and i, I just adore delays i come back to the stock delays so many times the logic tape delay plugin i just just works yeah you know um the mod delay in pro tools it, it just works you know it goes to show you you don't particularly need anything fancy you know obviously if i'm trying to create like a, a special effect a dubby kind of uh, thing then you need to get uh something specific but yeah and waves h delay I probably use that more than any other plugin. That's a cool one too, for sure. Every single mix. Yeah. I find that when you're like just trying to get like uh a, when you're trying to get like a synced delay, the stock plugins are usually all you need. They're pretty bare bones yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know, they have everything you need. And then when you want that kind of like lo-fi sound, then like the H delay is great for that. It's got all mm. that stuff built into it. Yeah. Um but then yeah, I I agree. I think there's a lot of other plugins out there that just make everything really complicated and yeah. But I, I had the same experience in the guitar playing world. You know, I, I had, um, what's the, is it Boss DM3? Mm-hmm. Or DD, DD something? DD3 or whatever it is. Yeah, I had one of those years ago. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And yeah, love it. And obviously it blew my mind. You know, the first time I had a delay pedal. Um, but then, you know, I kind of, Wanted to try something maybe more exotic, a bit more boutique, and I tried everything, you know. Perhaps not everything, but so many different delay uh, pedals. And then I remember one time um, this guitar player came in and we were recording some gu- uh, guitars, doing a guitar solo, and he whipped out his his boss delay. And I was like, I haven't seen that for years. And being candid, I was a bit kind of like, hmm, okay. We tried that and a few of mine, and his... It's just worked. Just sounded, you know, my, you know, original memory man's way too dark and noisy. And his boss digital delay just had a certain kind of like 
I don't think it's like it's completely pure. I think it's got a little mojo going on. Maybe it's like a little bit of lo-fi-ness. Yeah. Um, very much reminds me of the Waves Hates Delay. It, for some reason, one of these days, maybe I'll try and find out. It just works. Yeah. You know, it doesn't <laughs> doesn't sound too clean. It doesn't sound like too sterile. It has a little bit of something going on, even if you don't any add any modulation. But yeah, it's really cool. And I yeah. think it's a really important thing for people to um to realize. I see it all the time. People ask me about, you know, okay, I've just got Pro Tools or I've just got Logic. What plugins should I get next? What bundle? And I'm like, well, I think you should find out everything that you've got in the software first. I used to sit with the students all the time before they even knew what they had in, in Logic or Pro Tools. We're buying like Waves bundles and UAD bundles and, you know, and oftentimes they didn't know what was in the stock plugins. Totally. Especially like the Logic stuff. I've always been super impressed by their stock plugins. I think that they're great. Like their, yeah, their reverbs like, are amazing. Their delays are yeah, great. Like space yeah, space designer. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. I think it's killer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right on. Cool. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but I got well, I got one more question for you to, to wrap sure. things up. Um, at the end of the day, ultimately, what in your opinion makes a great mix? Mm. Makes a great mix. Well, I think, first of all, you need to serve the song and the mix needs to be appropriate for the song. Um, and then I think it's just getting the foundations, the things that are important, right? Vocals, low end, drums, the way they hit, and then just creating some kind of excitement and emotion. You know, one of the things that I really try to do is, uh, sounds a bit out there, but have some kind of emotion in my mixes, like energy, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there's some universal things, clarity, um, sounds big, where appropriate. Yeah. Hmm. Did I answer well, your question? Yeah, <laughs> no, not... no, I think you're right. It's, it, it is a hard question to answer and that, and that's why I love yeah. to ask people. It kind of stops people sometimes, <laughs> but I, I, I think you're right. I definitely think that there's like a lot of, uh, universal things that go into making a great mix. And I think you covered yeah. all those there too. Yeah. Yeah. There was the, the um, was it Bobby Owenowski? He wrote uh, the Mix Engineer's Handbook, and he had the six elements of a great mix, which was balance, frequency range, dynamics, depth, stereo width, and then I think he had special touches. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I had him on. I had him on as a guest. Uh, I can't remember the n- episode number, off but but uh, yeah, yeah oh, I wow. believe he talked about all that in that episode too. So mm. that's a good episode for people to go back to as well. Yeah, cool. awesome man. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I, I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, uh, we'll definitely have to we'll have to continue this another time for sure. Absolutely, right on, man. Thank you. Part two, nice one. Thank you. Talk soon. Take care. So that was my interview with Matt Foster, and I really enjoyed that. I loved that conversation all about you know, creating contrast in your mixes and how Matt likes to go about doing it with things like EQ and automating various compressor settings and, you know, maybe making duplicates of other tracks and, you know, processing the verses and the choruses different and all that kind of stuff. I think that that's a really interesting thing. And it definitely makes your mixes sound more exciting because there's a lot more movement throughout the track. You don't just have a static mix, right? I think automation is such an important thing. Because it makes a mix go from sounding very flat, where you can tell like 
there's no volume differences. There's no processing changes, like none of that. It, it all kind of just sounds the same, right? I think a lot of people tend to mix songs like that and they tend to sound amateur when you do that. But I love that Matt was talking about using automation in a lot of different ways to just create contrast and make your mixes sound more exciting. And I think that that's what really separates a lot of amateur mixes from pro mixes. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking about that. I thought it was really interesting to also learn more about his process when it comes to low end and how he likes to do things like side chaining with dynamic EQs. Uh, he talks about using that new Neutron plugin there, but I think you could definitely do it without that Neutron plugin just by using some side chaining with a dynamic EQ. Um, and yeah, also just getting to the idea of using volume and panning as like your primary tools for mixing. Again, I think that's such an important lesson that so many people lose sight of. It's it's easy to fall into the trap of wanting to use a sexy looking plugin or whatever, you know, because it's fun to twiddle all the different knobs and, you know, feel like you're using tools that you've seen other people use in videos and this and that. But at the end of the day, volume and panning are some of the most powerful tools, and I definitely don't want you to forget about those. So I love that Matt covered that in this interview. So yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you did too. And you know, I had such a great time chatting with Matt that uh, we actually we actually have a couple really awesome announcements to make. So number one, You've probably heard me talk about my coaching program, Amplitude, before. Amplitude is a program where I work one-on-one with my students to help them complete their mixes and offer you feedback on your tracks as you're working through them. So if you're feeling stuck, you're not sure what to do, you can simply send your mix in and get personalized feedback on what to do specifically with your mixes. Well, Amplitude has been growing, and we've been getting some amazing results in that program. And because of that... I was looking to get some additional help, and Matt has actually come on as a new coach inside of that program, too. So together, Matt and I are going to be helping out all of our students inside of that program and offering a lot more support and really helping people elevate their mixes. So I'm um, really excited to have Matt on the Master Your Mix team and to be helping students inside of Amplitude. Now, if you're interested in learning more about Amplitude, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, and you can find all the details there. But Just as a quick summary of the program, inside that program, you get personalized one-on-one feedback on your tracks, you get access to all of our Master Mix courses, you get access to mastering, and a whole bunch more. So yeah, if you're interested in learning more about that program, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, and you can find all the details there. And the second fun announcement to make is that Matt and I have decided that we're actually going to be doing a free YouTube live coaching call. And anybody is invited to this. Now, this episode is scheduled to be released on December 6th. This YouTube live event that we're going to be doing is going to be on December 9th. So Saturday, December 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And if you want to attend, all you need to do is visit the Master Your Mix YouTube page. The address for that is youtube.com forward slash master your mix. And on Saturday, December 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be hosting our live event. You just simply click on that video. And if you have questions, you want to engage with us, you want to get some feedback on stuff, definitely make sure to check that out and add your comments and we'll address those all live on the call. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to this call with Matt on December 9th and working with him inside of our Amplitude program. And that is it for this episode. I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.